Well, hey, this is James. Welcome to the podcast. This is Journey Church, and we're a church that exists so that people will meet Jesus and journey with him. We're in our launch team phase right now, and so what you're going to hear in this podcast are recordings from our launch team huddles as we prepare, put in work, and lay the groundwork, creating the culture for who we're going to be and who we are as a church as we get ready for our grand opening in March of 2022. So come on in behind the scenes, take a listen, and my hope is that you will join us for the journey because the journey continues. Let's listen. So I want to update you on a couple things so you know. uh, I mentioned in our Facebook group, Irene and I went to church planning assessment this past week. We drove to Shenandoah. We were there for a couple days. We're set to go to church planting assessment in uh, Texas, but the day we were supposed to go, our flight got canceled. American Airlines let me know. Uh, Just out of nowhere, it was canceled. So we tried everything we could to get there. It didn't work. Uh, So we had a private assessment this week. Uh, We went there and uh, we talked to a counselor and really the assessment team that was there went through all kinds of questions. We answered like 20 pages of questions. They did personality profiles on us. We talked through everything, talked about the past, present. Um, and uh, we got some really great insights on some things, uh, just about us, uh, our, my, how, how I operate and how I see things, uh, my temperament, um, some things that are good, some things to work on. Uh, but at the end of the assessment, they essentially said uh, from a score of zero to five, you get a 3.5. And if you hear that and you think, oh, that's just above average, that's a great thing. Uh, they said 3.2 or higher is a green light. They said, we think you have what it takes to start a church. You should do it. You should make it happen. And they said a five is like Jesus. So, so there's that, and then a uh, zero is, no, like, don't even think about it. So, and they said, the average is a three, that's an average church planter, and you guys got above the average church planter. So we're excellent, pretty much. Uh, but, uh, so that was really encouraging, um, and it was cool, too, because we went to church planting assessment about eight years ago. And they were able to compare our scores from back then to now, and not much changed. Um, but we changed as people. Um, we've, we've gained some insight. We've become more real and open. And we've been through some things that will help us as we move forward in launching Journey. And so what that means is... Um, Waypoint is a church planting organization. When we launched The Rising, we didn't have a church planting organization. We just did it. We just formed a launch team, raised some money, and started a church. But now we have a church planting organization that's going to come alongside us and help with some funding. Uh, But also they're going to provide an oversight team that's going to help me. Um, Essentially like a, a board of elders, if you're familiar with some like church leadership and structure and things like that. So this will be a great team for me. Um, and uh, they're just going to provide some guidance and support and structure that I didn't have before. That's really going to help me lead from a healthy place. Uh, 
I don't know how much of the story you know, but we stopped meeting in January, on January 3rd as a church. And so, I, uh, so me and Irene started this church, The Rising, 2014 was our grand opening. And we went for about six or seven years. And uh, last year, COVID hit. And we stopped meeting, moved venues from the Norva where we were meeting to Maker's Craft Brewery. But we didn't get a chance to start meeting there until later in the year. And uh, as we did that, figuring out how to meet during COVID was really difficult. Um, there were some difficulties that we experienced with the ownership there. And um, ultimately it got to a point where we just said, okay, meeting here is not going to work for us anymore. Uh, so we didn't have a place to meet after January 3rd. We put in our notice saying we're not, we're not going to continue to meet here anymore. Also around that time, uh, COVID cases were up. They had spiked at that time. So we said, you know, it's really hard to, to meet during that time. And then also just reflecting and looking at where I was, um, I wasn't in a healthy place physically, spiritually, mentally. And I made a whole video where I just talked about this. Um, you know, being in ministry is really difficult. Being in your job is really difficult. Whatever it is you do, if you interact with people, if you work behind the scenes, whatever it is, your life is difficult. So what I'm about to say is not saying my life is more difficult than yours. It's not a comparison, but being in ministry is really difficult. And over time, um, as I poured myself out, as Irene poured herself out, uh, as we were open and accepting and loving, we discovered that people are flawed, just like we are. People are messed up. People are hurt. And there are times when the waves of ministry beat up against you, beat up against us. And it started to erode our souls. We started to develop uh, what we call compassion fatigue, where I know I'm supposed to love you, but I don't like you. <laughs> uh, where it's, it just became uh, difficult to love genuinely. Um, and there were also things too tied into that where uh, we stopped meeting. I wasn't in a good place because even though I had done work to really separate my identity from what I did, Maybe you struggle with that. Your identity is what you do. And so somebody says, who are you? And you say, I'm a teacher. Well, that's not who you are. That's what you do. Right. Who, who are you? I'm a mechanic. That's not who you are. That's what you do. In the same way, my identity was, I'm a pastor. I lead this church. And my, my identity, my value, my self-worth is tied into how many people do we have on Sunday? Is this church growing? Are we reaching more people? Are we making budget? things like that. And what I thought my job was is to grow the church, but my job was to love people. And what I found, even uh, in assessment this past week, is, and, and, and so we stopped meeting. And so what I did from January to May is I took time to get healthy again. I took time to get physically healthy, You've probably heard me talk about 75 hard. 
If you haven't done 75 hard, you need to. Most of you will probably be like, I'm not going to. That's why you need to. Uh, it's a mental toughness and discipline program. I gained greater mental toughness, greater discipline. But a side, uh, a side benefit from that was I lost 20 pounds. I uh, went from 183 to 159. So I don't know. Maybe I'm giving you the numbers wrong. It was 20 pounds. Um, and uh, I read four or five books. I learned a lot about me. So... I got better physically and mentally and spiritually, and I'm in a good place now. And what we discovered at assessment is that we're in a good place right now. And partnering with Waypoint and having an oversight team is going to be the structure that I need to help me stay in a good place when we start this church and the waves of ministry start crashing again so that I can stay in that healthy place and make healthy choices um, and one of the things that I discovered, even in assessment, was, again, it's my job to love people, period. What I was doing was I was loving people so that I could get something from people. I was loving people so that our church could grow. Because if I'm there for you and I help you, then you'll be there for the church and you'll serve and you'll give and more people will come to our church and our church will grow and I'll be a great pastor because look at this church growing. And that's bad motives. And maybe you feel the same or think the same. If I, if I invest in this person, then they'll buy my product. If I care for this person, then they'll, how can it benefit me? And what I discovered is I wasn't in a healthy place, but I got in a healthy place. And my job, again, is just to love you with no expectations. And I wasn't doing that. I felt like I was owed something. I'm not owed anything. My job is to love you regardless. And I wasn't doing that. And there would be times where I'd step up on stage to preach a sermon and my goal was to preach a good sermon to get somebody to make a decision or to do a good job so people come back the next Sunday and that's not why you preach a sermon you preach a sermon to love people and to help people and so there were times where I would preach a sermon because it was about me and how can I be a good speaker and what did you like about it and before your mind moves to judgment, you just got to know a lot of preachers do that. <laughs> uh, I'm not the only one. But what I want to do moving forward and where I am is living in a place where regardless of the outcome, regardless of the return on investment that I put in it, and that's the thing. We look for a return on investment. I've invested so much time, effort, energy. I'm looking for a return on that. We all want to see a return on investment in things. You pour so much into your kids, you're like, come on, deliver. Like, live up to what I taught you to live. Do the thing. You, you uh, pour so much in your company or your job or whatever it is. If you're a teacher, you pour so much in your students. You want to see them give you a return on investment. Um, 
And that's why ministry is so sacrificial. That's why parenting is so sacrificial because it's, I'm here in this role to help you become all that God has called you to be, no matter what the return on investment is. Um, so these are some of the things that we, just greater insight as to why I operated the way that I did, because I'm so success driven. I'm so uh, results oriented. Um, and a lot of it stems from just me growing up. I wanted approval. I want approval. I want you to like me. I want to prove that I have what it takes. I want to prove that I'm good enough. And for me, the metrics of our church and growing a church was I'm good enough. Look at what I did. Look at what I'm doing. Uh, and so uh, this is all stuff that I'm continuing to work through uh, in a group that I, a crucible group that I meet with on a every other week basis. Uh, I'm also going to be, there was a counselor there at, the, at our assessment, so I'll be seeing him probably on a weekly basis to just work through more of this stuff. Um, and so at the end of assessment, they said, hey, we think you got what it takes. In spite of all that, we want to get, we're, get, we're going to give you a green light. We're going to come alongside you and support you and help you. And so for those of you who prayed for us as we were at assessment, thank you for doing that. Thank you for praying like God actually hears you because he does. And um, so that's uh, where we are right now. Uh, a couple other updates. I'm waiting to hear back on a space for meeting. I'm going to follow back up with Tallwood High School just to kind of see what's up. I sent out some criteria. If you're looking for spaces, let me know if you come across something. Uh, we're looking for a grand opening of March of next year, so um, just be praying that God opens up a door and that a, a space becomes very evident for us to meet at. So that's what we got going on. What we've been doing is we've been talking about our values uh, in this thing that we call the journey way. We call it the journey way because it's just like this is who we are. This is how we do things. This is how we operate. And you would say the same about your family. This is the Davis way. This is the Allen way, this is the Rodenheiser way, right? It's like, these are the things that define who we are and it's how we operate. It's like our core, it's in our blood, it's who we are. And so um, tonight I wanna share with you this value that we have, that real is all we know. Real is all we know. We can't be fake. We're not gonna fake it till we make it. We're not gonna put on a mask and act like we have it all together. And and just so you know, this is a value that I live out. This is a value that I embody. If not, I wouldn't have shared with you what I just shared with you. I would have said, we went to assessment and everything was great and it was awesome. Let's go plant a church. Praise the Lord. No, you, you need to know that I'm a flawed individual and I'm okay with sharing that with you because here's what I know about you. So are you. <laughs> so are you. You do not have it all together. Oh, but how often do we primp and pose and pretend like we got it all together? You know why, right? It's because you're ashamed to be naked. I mean, this is why. 
See, in Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve. First, he creates Adam. Adam names all the animals in the world. God has all the animals parade in front of him. God sees, or Adam sees all the animals. He names them, and he sees there's no suitable helper for him. That, like, he's alone. This is actually the first crisis in the scriptures. Not the fall of man, but that man was alone. And it's interesting to note that man was alone even before sin entered into the world. And being alone can feel devastating. Have you ever felt alone? I mean, you've been surrounded by people, but you were alone, lonely. Because your marriage was falling apart and you felt like you couldn't get help from anybody else. You felt alone. Or you're, you're... inundated with work and demands and responsibilities in college or high school or wherever it was and you felt like you couldn't share with anybody and so you felt alone or you felt like you had to perform and you had to be good enough and you had to achieve and you had to get the accolades and it was a lonely journey for you like there was no support Adam was alone literally alone. He didn't have anybody else. And so God creates Eve to be his helper, to be the person um, that he needed in his life. Sometimes people say, all you need is God. Well, that's not true because Adam had God, but he was still alone. We need one another. The truth is he and we are greater than just me. Good Lord, that sounds like a great value for a church. We need one another. Here's the thing we discovered that I knew all along, but a thing we discovered at assessment is I'm alone. I mean, I have Irene, and I feel like all I need is her. I'm good just being with her. But the problem is that's not good in starting a church. <laughs> starting a church, you got to be real and open with others, and you need others. I need others. So Adam got Eve, and in the scriptures it says, Genesis 2.25, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. I mean, you can imagine that, right? Maybe you shouldn't. But Adam and his wife are there in the garden in paradise playing naked volleyball together. And there's no shame. There's no giggles. There's no embarrassment. They're just enjoying life naked with no shame. This is how it should be in our life. Not physically naked now. We live after the fall where God clothed us. Um, But when it comes... So the person you're married to, you should be able to be naked and feel no shame. And that's why, that's why marriage was designed as the only structure in which to hold sex in a safe place. Outside of marriage, outside of this covenant relationship, outside of this bond that you have with another person where you've committed to love them through sickness and in health, for richer, for poor, in the easy times and the hard times, outside of that covenant relationship, 
sex is scary because we haven't committed to love one another no matter what. And so I don't know what you think about me or what you feel about me. And this is why inside marriage, if you haven't built that kind of relationship, that relationship of trust, sex can still be scary because do you accept me and love me, flaws and all? Do we have to turn the lights off before we take our clothes off? No, we should be able to, in marriage, be naked and feel no shame with the lights on. Everything. Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no shame. But then they do wrong. They go against God. Sin enters the world. Now all of a sudden they're ashamed. Now all of a sudden their eyes are open. They see one another and they're like, oh my God. And they, and they run and hide and they cover themselves with fig leaves. And, and God asks, what, what are you doing? And, they, and Adam says, I was naked and I was ashamed. So I covered up. And God said, who told you you were naked? Who told you there was something wrong with you? Who told you there was something bad there? And this is the dilemma that we find ourselves in. We look at ourselves and we say, there's something wrong with me. We feel naked and we feel ashamed. I can't show others this shortcoming, this downfall, this struggle. Because if others saw me, what would they think of me? They wouldn't accept me. They wouldn't embrace me. And so we put on a mask, we pretend to be somebody else, we fake it till we make it, we act like we have it all together when we don't. We are in this constant state of covering up. And sometimes it's good to cover up because you don't need to show everybody your nakedness. But you do need to show somebody your nakedness. And I'm not talking about your physical nakedness now, so don't. <laughs> we don't you don't need to show everybody your nakedness, but you do need to show some people your nakedness. But so often, <laughs> so often we keep covered up and clothes on and we never let anybody in because if you knew, what would you think about me? See, we want to be the kind of church where we say real is all we know. And so I'm not going to fake it. I'm not going to pretend like it's okay. I'm going to be real and open and vulnerable, knowing that if I show you what's underneath, it might hurt. It might be difficult. It might expose something I'm embarrassed of. But I know that I need to do that because that's the only way that I can be free. You do feel free when you get naked, don't you? <laughs> Our son does. He, yeah, he does. But that's the only way that we can get free. That's the only way when we can be really authentically us. I want to move from, from nakedness to, to talk to you about this example that we see in the same book, in the book of Genesis, around this guy named Jacob. See, uh, Jacob is born to Isaac and Rebekah. And when Jacob is born, he's a twin brother with his, his twin Esau. And while they're in the womb, the scriptures say that they battled within the womb. There was war with each other. They didn't like each other, even as babies in the womb. And when it was time for them to be born, Esau comes out first. He's the firstborn, but Jacob is grabbing onto his heel. 
and when he comes out, uh, Esau comes out and he's, he's hairy with this red hair all over. So they call him Esau, which means red. They're like, you're red, so red. That's your name. Uh, and Jacob, because he's grabbing Esau's heel, he's called heel grabber. Like that's, his, that's what Jacob means, heel grabber. And so in some other phrases, it means this, that Jacob was a place taker. He wanted to take Esau's place. It can mean whatever it takes to get ahead. He was willing to do whatever it took, even pull his brother back down so he could be the first one out. It can mean deceiver or trickster. For Jacob, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get ahead. Even if I have to deceive you and trick you, I will do whatever it takes. And Jacob lives up to that name of deceiver. Because there's this time where he grows up and um, it's time to receive the blessing of Isaac. And uh, this was a traditional thing that they would do where uh, the blessing would be given to the firstborn. And the firstborn would inherit more than any of the other children. And so this time's about to come and Isaac says to his son Esau, Hey, before I bless you, go, go hunt, because Esau was a great hunter. Go hunt, catch some game, and make me a tasty meal. That's what he says. Give me some tasty game. And so Esau goes out hunting. Well, Rebecca hears, okay, my husband's about to bless our son. And Jacob was a mama's boy. Esau was a daddy's boy. Isaac liked Esau more. Rebecca liked Jacob more. Rebecca wants Jacob to be blessed. So she says, Jacob, we're going to come up with a plan to get the blessing from your father. And so she prepares a meal for Isaac to eat. And then she dresses Jacob in Esau's clothes. Now Isaac can't see very well, so that's why this deception works. What happens is Jacob presents himself to his father who can't see very well, wearing Esau's clothes. He puts goat hair on his arms just in case Isaac touches him. He'll feel the hair because Esau's hairy. And then he's going to present him a meal that his mother cooked. And this is what happens. He went to his father and said, My father, yes, my son, he answered, who is it? And Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. What's your name? Esau. It's not Esau. I've done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my games so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked him, how did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau, he replied. I am, he said. Jacob presents himself to Isaac, covered up, dressed as Esau. He's asked, what's your name? Esau. But that's not who he is. He's pretending to be somebody he's not. And he ends up receiving Esau's blessing. And all throughout his life, as you read through his life in the book of Genesis, you'll see that Jacob constantly deceives and tricks people. 
And then there's this moment where he finds that Esau, the years have passed, years have passed. And there's this moment where he finds that Esau, his brother, is coming to meet him. Jacob is terrified because he screwed his brother so much. He's taken his blessing. He's taken his inheritance. He's left him with nothing. And now all of a sudden he hears, Esau is on his way to meet you. Jacob is freaking out. He's like, he's going to come kill me. So what he does is he goes out to meet Esau, who's a long way off. But before he gets to Esau, he sends all his wives over and his children and his herds, his flocks, his servants. I think in his mind, he's like, okay, if Esau is trying to kill me, he's going to kill them first. I'm going to see it. I'm going to run away. <laughs> like he's willing to sacrifice his family so that he doesn't die. You see how low this guy is? What a scoundrel. So he sends everyone over first to where Esau is because he can still make his getaway. But he also sends over some gifts to Esau to try and appease him. So here's what happens. Genesis 32, that night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 sons, and crossed the fort of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Can you imagine how Adam must have felt feeling alone? after naming all the animals, realizing there's no suitable helper for me. Can you imagine the depression he must have wrestled with? The fear he must have wrestled with? The doubt he must have wrestled with? The hopelessness he must have wrestled with in that moment of aloneness? And then God creates Eve from his rib and provides for him exactly what he needs to help mate. Here Jacob is alone, and he wrestles with this man. We found out later that this man is actually God. It's like God in human form. But what I find interesting is that in our aloneness, in our moments of rock bottom, of deep despair and depression, I mean, Jacob is fearing for his life. He sent everything, his family all over. He's, he could lose everything because Esau may kill them. And it's in this moment of depression, of fear, of rock bottom, that Jacob wrestles with this man, God in human form. You found this to be true in your own life, haven't you? That in, in the times of your loneliness, the times where you've tried everything else, the times where you just hit rock bottom, you see who you really are. You see the ugliness in you. You see the greed in you. You see the despair. You see the doubt. You see the depression. It's in those moments of loneliness that a breakthrough comes out, that a breakthrough breaks forth. I'll say it that way so you can take that. You can take those notes and put it on Twitter. It's in those moments of loneliness that a breakthrough breaks forth. This is what happens with Jacob. He wrestles with this man till daybreak. And so it's probably late at night when he starts wrestling. I don't know how long they wrestle for, probably hours. But he wrestles with him till daybreak. 
it's in the darkness of despair, of loneliness that he wrestles. It's in the dark, despairing times of our life that we wrestle with some of the things that we have shoved in the shadows of our life. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Do you see how tough Jacob is? He's wrestling with God all night for hours. He gets him in a headlock and God's like, I can't get out of this. So he wrenches his hip. He touches his hip so his hip comes out of his socket and Jacob still holds on. Have you ever had your hip ripped out of its socket? I haven't, but I'm sure it's painful. Ron, you broke your hip, right? It's painful. Some of you have broken bones. I haven't, because I'm perfect. No, I haven't, but it's painful from what I hear. Right. So, so they're wrestling. God wrenches his hip and he hasn't let him go. He didn't tap out. Some of us would have tapped out. Some of us tap out when things get difficult. Some of us tap out when pain comes our way. Some of us tap out when the truth in front of us is just too big for us to admit and push through and see a breakthrough. We tap out too soon. Jacob doesn't tap out. He holds on. Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I need to come out on the other side better than when I came in. Jacob was willing to wrestle. Jacob was willing to do whatever it took so that he could emerge better. I wonder, are you willing to do whatever it takes so that you can emerge better in your life, in your marriage, in your workplace, as, as parents, as sons and daughters? Are you willing to do whatever it takes so that you can emerge better? Some of us quit at the first signs of any hardship. Some of us quit at the first, first time we get called out on a, on a lack of commitment. Some of us quit when we see something in the mirror we don't like and we just say, well, I guess I'll just live with it. Because you've been living with that weight problem for years, thinking you can't fix it. You look at me. You've been, I'm looking all around. I <laughs> <laughs> see. I said, I said, I need to make sure in my mind. And this is what happens when I'm talking too. I'm like, I'm like, don't, don't stay focused on one person any, anytime too long as you talk about this stuff. This is, I'm having a conversation with myself while I'm saying things. Nope. I'm, I'm, I'm going to move on to another example. Have you been lit? See, I can't even, I can't even move to another example. I can't, but. Have you been living with something for far too long? You can just say, well, this is it. Not Jacob. He wasn't going to tap out. He, wasn't, he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, well, what's your name? Hey, he was asked this question before, wasn't he? He was asked this question by Isaac. Who are you? Who are you? See, when Jacob was asked this question by, by Isaac, he was in a certain place in his life. But now he's been through some stuff. 
Now his, his brother's on the way to potentially kill him. He does not know. Now he's, he's deceived uh, his, his uncle Laban. Now he's uh, married. Now he has a family. Now he has, he's in a different place in life. And now he's been wrestling all night in the dark hours. He's experienced some desperation, some hopelessness. He's hit rock bottom. Because I might cross this river and my brother might kill me. I don't know. So now he's asked, who are you? He's in a very different place now. And I want you to notice he doesn't answer like he answered before. But he does have to ask the question, am I willing to remove the mask and be who I really am and show who I really am? I've been wrestling all night. Day breaks about, am I willing to step out of the darkness and into the light? Am I, really, am I willing to be real? Who are you? What is your name? The man asked. Jacob, he answered. There's this moment of breakthrough, right? What's your name? Like, who are you really? And Jacob says, I'm a deceiver. Remember, that's what Jacob means. Jacob means deceiver. Who are you? I'm the man who's willing to do whatever it takes to get ahead. That's who I am. Who, who are you for real? What's your name? Um, I'm the man that's, that's willing to do whatever it takes at all costs. I'm a trickster. I'm a liar. I'm a deceiver. He's real with God. Have you been trying to deceive God? Have you been trying to play like you got it all together? Have you been trying to fool God? God knows. God knows. Who are you? What's your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob. No, 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 no. Not deceiver anymore. Not trickster. Not whatever it takes to get ahead. No. Your name is going to be Israel. Because you've struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. The name Israel means one who struggled with God. It's when we go through this crucible of struggling with God, wrestling with God, refusing to let go, refusing to give up, but to do the hard work, the deep work, the soul work of searching within and being real with ourselves, that we allow God to change our name and become the people He's called us to be. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. And the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel and he was limping because of his hip. Jacob in this moment when he's real with God, he takes all the stuff that he shoved in the shadows the things that he hid in the darkness, and he wrestled with them through the dark hours with God. And when the light broke forth, when daybreak came, God changed his name because he was willing to step out of the shadows into the light and say, here's who I really am. He embraced being real, and God changed his identity. He gave him a new name. 
But I want you to notice that when Jacob left that encounter with God, he left limping. Being real is not an easy thing to do. Being real means we lay down our ego and our pride and we embrace humility. And when we're real and we embrace humility, we might get banged up a bit because some people might hold it against you because they don't realize that they're not as perfect as they expect you to be. You might walk away with a limp, but you'll walk away better. You'll walk away new. You'll walk away whole. You'll walk away real. See, what I've come to discover is that we often shove our stuff in the shadows. I would say another word starts with the SH because it sounds great with the shove and shadows, but I'll just say stuff. We shove our stuff in the shadows and we pretend like it's not there, but how many of you know that the things you've shoved in the shadows are still you? It's still there. The way we become free is we welcome those things. We embrace those things. We bring those things out into the light. We're no longer ashamed of those things, but we embrace them. And we allow God to work in those areas of our life to heal us and make us whole. You know, one of the things that I think is the most powerful tools we have as a church is sharing the stories of our life. And the stories that I want to share in our church when we start meeting on Sundays and even before that are not the stories where a bow is neatly tied to the end of it. I was here and things went down and then I met God and everything got better and now my life is great and amazing. That's great and that happens sometimes, but that's not every story for all of our lives. Some of us, we're still in the darkness. Some of us, and it still sucks. Some of us, and I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Some of us, and I'm still trying my best to make it through day by day. Those are the stories that we cannot be ashamed to share. And I say that, and you got to be in a place, though, where you're good with it. I say that because I remember in our church before, I would ask people, hey, would you share that story? They would say, no, and they'd shy away from it because they felt like they had to have it fixed first. Oh, that addiction was way back then. Oh, that mindset I had was back then. Oh, but God hasn't fixed that yet. I know, and that's why I want you to share it because there's other people just like you who God hasn't fixed it yet and they're still struggling and we have to be the people who say this is but I'm on this journey I'm following God I'm trusting him and there's some days where I'm not trusting him because I don't believe we need to be able to say that and share that because there's other people just like you And so what happens is oftentimes we shove our stuff in the shadows and we think if people ever got close and they'd see that I'm a fraud. I don't want to share with you what my motives were. I don't want to share with you what I thought. I don't want to share with you that my identity was tied up and leading a church and because that's not how pastors are supposed to be. But I'm a person just like you. I'm not perfect just like you. I'm flawed just like you. 
and a fear that I have in sharing that, if, this, if I share that, who's going to think, oh, well, he's a fraud. He, he doesn't have it all together. I'm afraid you're going to think I don't have it all together. So I want you to feel like I got it all together. I want you to think I got it all together. But then, if I make you think I have it all together, there's going to be a point where you realize I don't have it all together and you're going to be disappointed. So I'd just rather come right out front and let you know I don't have it all together. <laughs> I'm flawed just like you. But I'm a person who, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, I'm saying follow my example as I follow Christ. So you can trust and know, yes, I don't have it all together, but I'm journeying towards Jesus and I think you can follow me because I'm leading you to the one who does have it all together. And my hope is that you would say the same yourself because we're all in this together. Hey, I don't have it all together, but I'm following the one who does, so follow my example. This is why some people don't share their faith with other people because they feel like they gotta have it all together and they're not perfect and what if I don't have the answers? That's not, I, you don't have to have it all together. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have all the answers. You just gotta tell people, you know what? I don't know, but that's why I need Jesus. The, the reason, well, why do, here's why I believe in Jesus because I need him. I follow Jesus because I need to. If I don't, I'm a wreck. I'm a mess. I cannot have a great marriage without Jesus leading me and guiding me. I cannot raise our kids without Jesus. I cannot do anything I do without Jesus pouring into me and giving me the grace that I need on a daily basis and the strength that I need on a daily basis. Why do you believe in Jesus? I believe in Jesus because I need him. But sometimes we think, see, we shove our stuff in the shadows and we think, well, if people ever got close to me, they'd see I'm a fraud. I don't know what I'm doing. And so I present better than I really am. Well, if people ever found out about the doubt that I had, the insecurity I possessed, the inadequacy I felt, they might look down on me and not accept me. We, we shove our stuff in the shadows because there's some stuff in my past that haunts and even shapes me now and I don't want to deal with it, so I'll suppress it. Maybe you shove some stuff in the shadows because you think, well, if people knew the way I treated my wife or the way we interact with one another, I might get lovingly confronted about it and be forced to make a decision on if I'm going to change. And, if I don't, and I don't really want to change, so I don't want to have to make that decision. So what happens in our house stays in our house until it blows up on Facebook that we're getting a divorce. I just saw that recently. Somebody posting about getting a divorce. And it's like, man, but if you had shared some of what you were going through and got help, maybe you wouldn't be in that spot right now. But we can't share that with other people because we don't want other people to know what's going on. But other people are going to find out what's going on when you take it to social media. <laughs> so you might as well put it out there now to get some help. Bring it out into the light. We shove our stuff in the shadows because... I'm looking for love and acceptance, but in the wrong places. And rather than say that and see that, I'll just keep going back to the wells that leave me empty and thirsty. You know some people who are stuck in a cycle. Maybe you're stuck in a cycle. 
And you got to take ownership of that and say that and share that and be real with that and say, this isn't working. I want to change. Maybe you mask your greed with wisdom and saving for the future. Oh, we're saving for the future. And that's a good thing and you should, but it's really that you're greedy. And so you shove the greed in the shadows and you mask it with wisdom. Maybe you don't fully commit to things because the thing you shove in the shadows is that you're afraid to fail. Or that if you commit to something, you actually have to commit. And you might just become better if you do it. But you realize it's going to require work for you to become better, so you give half-hearted commitments. See, we shove all sorts of stuff in the shadows. But we got to be real. we got to be the kind of people who are real. And I want to let you know, and hopefully this eases the burden for you. This allows you to come into the light. Here's, here's what is so much of a breakthrough for me. It's this, that God expects more failure from you than you expect from yourself. And He still loves you and He calls you by name. God knows you don't have it all together. Actually, God thinks you're more jacked up than you think you are. And He still loves you and calls you by name. God knows the deepest parts of you that you've suppressed and shoved in the shadows. He knows the things you don't even know about yourself. And He still loves you and calls you by name. And I want to invite you to accept that and embrace that tonight. When Jesus was baptized before the start of His ministry, before he had healed anybody, before he fed anybody, before he taught anything, before he did anything of note. Jesus was baptized and in Matthew 3:17, God, his heavenly Father, said, "This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy." God said about Jesus before he did, did anything worth writing about. "You're my beloved son." And you bring me great joy. In 2 Corinthians 6.18, Paul writes to the Corinth church, he says, This is what God says to us, I'll be your father, and you'll be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Can I just take a moment to speak this over you? I want to invite you to close your eyes. And to accept this and embrace this as God's son or daughter. I'm not God, but would you hear these words as God speaking directly to you? You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. You're the apple of my eye. You're the one I cherish. You're the one I show pictures to the angels and say, look at my kid. You see how great they are? Yeah, and I know all the stuff in your shadows, and I know the things you're ashamed of, and I know your past, and I know your history, and I know your doubt and despair. I know your hopelessness. I know your anxiety. I know all the times you don't get it right. I know the times you feel like a failure. I know the times you don't measure up. But let me, let me just let you know 
You are my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter. And you bring me great joy. Oh, you bring me great joy. Don't even think about the failure. Don't even think about the time you let me down. Don't even think about the time where I commanded you to do something and you didn't do it. You said no to me. No, 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 no. Look, look, it doesn't, you bring me great joy. And I know your marriage didn't work. You bring me great joy. And I know there's times you snap at your kids. Listen, listen, you bring me great joy. I know you don't read the Bible. I know you feel like you should pray more. I know. I, listen, for all your faults, flaws, and failures, you bring me great joy because I know you. All of you. And you bring me great joy. So you're accepted. You're approved. You're loved. Just as you are and not as you should be. And now, will you be who I've called you to be? Will you be real? Will you embrace what's in the shadows and bring them into the light? Will you stop trying to cover up? Will you allow me to love you and make you clean? It only happens if you'll be real with me. God, we thank you that you love us. You've called us by name. You know us better than we know ourselves. And you accept us and embrace us and we have your approval. Let us be real. Because we want to be the kind of people who are real. That's all we know. That's all we know how to be. Because when we're real, it brings our healing. When we're real, it helps others. When we're real, it sets us free. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, well, thanks so much for listening. My hope is that you were inspired by what you heard and your inspiration would move you to action and you would want to join our launch team. You can check out more information and join our team at thisisjourney.church. You can also give there to support the ministry. You can sign up for our prayer team to be praying for what God is doing in and through us. But my hope is you'll join us and get in on the ground level because the journey continues.